Welcome to another edition of the Official Jets Podcast, powered by Amazon Web Services. Ethan Greenberg, Eric Allen in the home studios. We'll hear from Bart Scott later in the show. But this week, we're joined by undrafted rookie free agent Javelin Guidry. I feel the need, the need for speed. This guy can burn greens. Uh, he's one of the fastest guys in the National Football League. In fact, coming out, he wasn't drafted out of Utah, but what? He was like a 4-2-9, and Henry Ruggs was the only guy faster in the draft class at 4-2-7. Uh, the other thing that I really like about Javelin is, is fans will find out is he comes from a very athletic family, and he's just not a smaller type player who isn't strong. This dude continues to get his hands on the football, knocking the ball out. And to me, I love the fact that he benched 225 pounds, 21 times. That's something else for a guy who weighs about 190. It's very impressive. And we did ask Javelin Guidry if Devontae Parker actually caught that ball, that the refs called a catch and it was officially ruled as a forced fumble from Javelin. Oh, and, you know, we'll, we, we asked him his opinion on that, but I will say <laughs> when the Jets played the Raiders a couple weeks ago, there was a speed-on-speed speed crime. Henry Ruggs, Javelin, Guidry. Guidry knocked that ball out for the second straight week. Yeah, and you're seeing that early on in his career, and that's what you want to see if you're the Jets personnel department and if you are the Jets fan base. Obviously, the Jets are still looking for that first win. 0-13, one of the most difficult seasons in franchise history. We talk about it each and every week, but you want to see development and opportunity for some of these young guys. And Gidry is a guy who played at the highest level. College football at Utah was a nickelback. Decided to come out after his junior year, took the undrafted route, signed with the Jets, and now with Brian Poole, unfortunately, out of the lineup, he's getting opportunities at that nickel spot. So let's see what he can do over these final three games. Do not tell me these final three games are not important in the National Football League season. Yes, the Jets aren't going anywhere in three weeks. We know that. But you only have three games remaining until next summer. Yeah, I think that you hit the nail on the head. This is the time of year where you start to see what you have in the future. And Javelin Guidry is someone that's taken advantage of his opportunities. And he played the most snaps of his young career against the Seattle Seahawks yesterday as we record this podcast Monday afternoon. So let's hear from Javelin Guidry right now. I read somewhere that you started competing in track and field at seven years old. Is that true? Yes, started at a young age, just getting the flow of it. My dad said I was gifted with speed, so just being able to compete using my speed, it's been a blessing at a young age. Now, Javelin, we have so many things to get to with you. First thing I want to talk about is what made you leave Utah after three years? Um, I was just confident in my ability to play at the next level. Um, I felt like I was ready and uh, I took the chance on myself and believed in myself, and uh, here I am now. So quick follow-up, though. You went undrafted. Was there a lot of disappointment that weekend, or you knew all along, listen, I'm betting on myself. I'm going to make it no matter what. Uh, yeah, that weekend, there was definitely disappointment, but it was more of right, I still believe in myself and my abilities on the field, and wherever I go undrafted, I'm going to make the most of my opportunities. You know, you're someone that ran one of the, I believe, the second fastest 40-yard dash at the Combine behind Henry Ruggs. You mentioned your track and field speed. What was the first time you knew that you were fast and you believed it? 
Um, I'd say um, probably at a young age, like eight, nine years old, I played soccer and I would always chase people down, running the ball or running with the ball and uh, defend the ball. And that's when I was in track as well. And just, I just felt it in me. And my parents always told me that I was fast and gifted with speed and uh, just being able to use it now is great. Uh, Javelin, you are one of the fastest players in the National Football League. Green said, what, you were a 4.27 maybe at the Combine, and Ruggs might have been a 4.22, but I'm going to go further beyond that. Is Javelin Gidry one of the fastest people in the entire country? I'm not just talking about the National Football League, but all athletes, including Olympians, because I wanted to know, do you have any Olympic dreams or you put that on hold forever. <laughs> um, I definitely, well, I really did track just to become faster for football. And uh, in high school I did and realizing I was faster than that and just getting faster. I definitely had um, Olympic aspirations, but I felt like football was where I was. And uh, I really want to do the Olympics just to compete with the fastest in the world and in America as well, just to see where I stand. And I'm a competitor first off. So just, being able to go out there in a different sport, that's what I love to do. So are you a Usain Bolt guy? I feel like when people think about the fastest men in the world, most people think of Usain Bolt. Oh, yeah. He, he's different for real. He's fast. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm confident in myself. At the end of the day, I'm going to compete. So I, I think about Carl Lewis. That's before your time, Javelin. I don't know if anybody's told you a little bit about Carl Lewis, but he's one of the top sprinters in the history uh, this country, there's no doubt about that. What was your favorite event in terms of track and field? I'd say the 100 meters for me, but also the four by four. Just that's always the last event, and just everyone's watching that event as well. And I did that a couple times to get ready for the 100. So just that's just all just inner dog that race. The 400. <laughs> that's a tough race, and. Uh, competing at that and watch people compete at that is is great to see you know you were talking about that you use track as a way to get faster for football how what was your introduction to football was it your dad was it your uncle and your family is very athletic so with that being said are you the fastest one in the family too yes no doubt <laughs> my dad my uncle he'll say he'll give me a 10 meters and i'm waiting for him to heal up so we can race but yeah just um yeah, my dad and uncle, they both played at UCLA. And uh, at a young age, I played um, Little League football, Pop Warner. And I was always a running back and just going through that, going through middle school. And then my dad told me that, look, running back, you're going to take a lot of hits. But if you move to DB like I was, you'll be able to compete, have fun, and play for a long time. So I made the switch my freshman or sophomore year. And I've been that ever since. What is the backstory? How did you not wind up at UCLA? You just talked about your family and the background there, but you went to another Pac-12 school, of course, at Utah. Yes, unfortunately, they didn't offer me or look at me, recruit me at all. So, and I, that was one of my dream schools growing up as well. So, because my mom went there as well, my dad, my uncle, and some cousins. So, my brother's in there now, so I'm able to live through him, but. Yeah, I was at Utah, so. And what did you like about Utah in particular? Um, I love the family aspect up there. Just um, 
a lot of people come from many different places, from Florida, Texas, California, even Utah, and just um, coming together, learn to work hard and um, compete at a high level over there. It's in the Pac-12. We were Pac-12 South champions for two years, and um, it was a great time playing up there. Okay, so why don't you tell everybody who the coach was at Utah? Because he's been there a long time and super successful. And after you do that, what kind of mentality did he approach football with? Because I think it's carried through that program for close to two decades now. Yes, Coach Witt and, Coach Witt and the Big Dog. Uh, he's just teaching us how to just work hard and trust the process. You know, it's going to be some days are going to be easy. Some days are going to be hard. Most of the days were hard. And so just pushing through, uh, trusting your teammates and doing your job. At the end of the day, you're going to be successful. And uh, he taught me a lot of life lessons, him and Coach Shaw, Coach Scowley. They were great coaches for me during my career at Utah. You know, what about what was football and really sports like for you growing up? Because you were born in California. You go to Texas. You go back to California. Was it difficult at all to try to find a rhythm and try to really put yourself on the map? Um, it was different for the aspect, the social aspect, you know, making new friends. But uh, at the end of the day, it was just competing and um, trying to take someone's job wherever the new school we went to and uh, be able to still be able to get recruited wherever we went. And me and my brother, we um, worked hard together um, at first, wherever we moved, we moved to Texas and um, just build a name for ourselves and the schools we were at. What kind of advice would you give kids who bounce around a little bit for no matter the reason, because everybody's got a different family situation. And a lot of times jobs bring parents different places. But like Ethan mentioned, three different high schools. I got to imagine your athletic background really helped you get friends quickly because you had those inner circles of people that you were hanging out with beyond the classroom. Yes, I would say just. Um, be able to sacrifice and understand whatever reason may be for you moving. It's for the best and you just have to learn how to adapt wherever you are. And um, I was able to make lots of friends, that life friends that I have now from the different high schools I went to. And um, leaving was definitely hard, but understanding that you're able to go to a new place and it's a brand new start. You got to make a name for yourself again. It really helped me in my career and even now. What's the most significant differences between uh, growing up in California and growing up in Texas? Um, I'm not going to lie. I, so I grew up in California, and um, when we found out we were moving to Texas, my mom told me I just – I had the stereotype of, like, the cowboys and <laughs> the horses and all that, but it, it's really not like that. I say it's just – California is more city-like, but Texas is more – they have their cities, but it's more like – country like almost where I was and so I'm grateful to be at both places and have friends in both spots so do you prefer in and out or Whataburger in and out all with the all the way (laughs) (laughs) hey man you got more than just speed I'm jealous of you because I'm thinking yeah you know Javelin he's a good athlete obviously in a sprinter speed but 225 21 times how were you? How were you able to do that? Because what do you weigh? You probably weigh about 190 pounds. Have you ever? Have you always been really good in the weight room, or is that something that you worked tremendously hard at and got better over the years? Because that's unheard of. 21 reps at, at 225. Yeah, I was always um, weight room oriented. Uh, 
throughout college with at Utah and um, growing up, I would always do push up before I go to bed and when I wake up and uh, <laughs> during the combine training, I would uh, wanted to make a point to get my age at least. So just working hard, um, being able to put up those numbers, it was a great accomplishment for me. Javelin, can can you take us back to the pre-draft process and what your interactions were like with the Jets and why you eventually decided to choose to sign with the Jets? Um, I'd say I had uh, one uh, meeting with the Jets with Coach D, and um, that was my actually my actually my last meeting before like we did all the testing and all that, and um, just I felt like after the draft scene, like where I was going to go, I felt like that was the best place for me to succeed within their system and um, being able to make the most of my opportunity wherever I go. And New York was a place for me. What kind of advice would you give kids growing up, people in college who are playing that nickel position? Because that's one of the toughest positions in all of sports, I think, Javelin. And you did it all throughout your time at Utah. Now you're doing this at the professional at the professional level with the New York Jets. Yeah, I'd say um, – Eyes are the key, and uh, you got to be physical. You're basically a faster linebacker. You got to be able to cover uh, slot receivers as well as get your nose in there in the tackles. And so, uh, just being able to do both and um, mentally preparing as well, uh, preparing yourself, it'll make the game much easier for you at the end of the day. A lot of coaches and veteran players talk about this off season, the one that you signed with the Jets in as obviously a unique one without. Any in-person meetings, no OTAs, no mini camp. Your first time meeting these teammates of yours is in training camp. There's no preseason. How much have you learned since you first set foot in the building to now? And what's it been like for you to get some more playing time as of late? Um, Yeah, just um, going back to uh, training camp or even before that, the virtual meetings just uh, for me being able to talk with my fellow rookies and the DBs in the room just – learning the playbook, studying day in, day out, and uh, coming up here, training camp, working hard, and just um, learning to prove and reprove myself each day. And um, it's paid off, the hard work, and um, now being able to play, it's a blessing. Well, Javelin, let us in on a little secret. Was that a catch by Devontae Parker? I'm still going back <laughs> and looking at the tape. That was ridiculous. The refs <laughs> called it, but yeah. – <laughs> My coach was like, that's no catch. I want to tell me it's no catch. So I, I try to get it out. Always punch the ball out. And, you've and had then to... you had the other force fumble, too, the next week. Yep. So uh, is that something that, again, are you trained to do? You Obviously, you learn to do that. But, again, some guys don't have a knack for it. You've shown a knack for it here early in your career. There are a lot of guys who might play that position for a long time, and it, it will take them a while to force a fumble. But it, we're expecting that out of you every week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just um, learning here, it's, uh, Coach D tells us to play violently through the pocket, uh, whether we're tackling or the ball's in the air, just be violent. And um, I've been doing it in practice, practicing it, um, and being able to do it in the game. and come up with a fumble. I thought it was incomplete first, so I'm just going for the ball and just figured out it was a fumble, just trying to hold them back, and Marcus came and scooped it. It was a great feeling, for sure. Speaking of, speaking of Marcus, what interception were you most more impressed with? That one in Miami where he, you know, hit it up in the air, fell down, went around his butt, <laughs> got some help, or the one against the Seattle Seahawks where he's going 
one-on-one with one of the best receivers in football, DK Metcalf, and he comes down with the pick of Russell Wilson. Yeah, they're both great. Uh, I would say I like the Miami one, just catching the one hand, like, on your butt, too. That's crazy. But the one uh, yesterday was great, too, just being able to track the ball and come down with it against DK. That was a great play. I was hyped for him, for sure. (laughs) Javelin, who do you lean on in the secondary in terms of wisdom and knowledge because that's a room that's very young in itself and obviously you think of the gray beard of both the secondary or the safeties in the corners you think of somebody like Marcus May but outside of Marcus is there somebody that you turn to more than others um I turn to Arthur Art uh just he's been a real great mentor for me just um with being able to transition into the league learn how to be a great professional uh Marcus as well but um I'd say the rookies as well, just us being tight, me, Bryce, Lamar, uh, Ashton, just talking about our experiences and what we're going through. We're able to learn from each other. And, um, yeah, Art and Marcus, they've been great leaders for us, and uh, I learned a lot from them. I'm grateful. Who was your team growing up? Uh, you talked about your California roots, so if you had an NFL favorite team, who was it? And the follow-up there is – you're going back to California again this weekend. No fans in the stadium, so a little bit different. But I got to imagine it's got to be special on that plane ride going back to your home state, knowing where you're at. Yeah, my team, Um, I'd say the Ravens, just because my brothers was a Steelers fan, and I would, I'd always treat the opposite of him. So, <laughs> But, yeah, going back to uh, California, being able to play um, in the city I was born, Inglewood, it's – Definitely a blessing. I wish there were fans there, but um, it's always great going back to California. I love it. A Lakers fan? Yes, I was. Growing up, I was a Lakers fan. Okay, because I wanted to tell you quickly, uh, former Jets head coach Herm Edwards, who's at Arizona State right now, monstrous Lakers fan. He used to walk up and down the halls at Weeview Bank Hall saying, it's all good in Inglewood. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. So wait, so you said you were a Lakers fan. Does that mean you're not a Lakers fan anymore? Um, I'm more like a players fan. So I like watching just players compete at the end of the day. But yeah, my family's Lakers, so I'm I'll rock with the Lakers for now. <laughs> oh man, what a ride it's been. How would you describe the past year of uh your life? Because uh 2020 has been crazy for a lot of people uh, for a myriad of reasons. But uh, you're in the NFL. You broke in undrafted. You're taking an uncommon road right now, and you're getting a lot of playing time here down the stretch in your rookie year. Yeah, it's a blessing. All glory to God this year. Um, It's been a long year for me, rookie season. They said it would be, and just from uh, declaring from the draft to being here now playing in the league, it's just been a blessing, and just every day, just treating it like a new day and being appreciative of being here at this level and uh, staying safe at the same time is really fun. Awesome stuff from Javelin Gidry, who EA and I said earlier, getting more opportunity as of late. And right now, EA, the Jets are in the middle of a back-to-back West Coast trip. They played the Seahawks. Then this week, they're playing the Rams. But in a non-COVID world, you would have likely seen the team stay out on the West Coast. Now, the Jets have to come all the way back before going all the way back out there to take on the first place leaders of the NFC West. 
Yeah, how about the Patriots? They got some uh, kind of break with the scheduling because they had a Sunday game against the Chargers. They shut them out in blowout fashion. But then just a couple days before the Thursday night game against the Rams, and Rams really took it to them. And you mentioned the Jets' travel schedule this year, West Coast filled with a lot of trips out there, uh, back-to-back now Seattle and Los Angeles. I think, in fact, this is the second most miles in franchise history in terms of a schedule. So, yes, the Jets uh, putting on those frequent flyer miles. But the last game of the season is not a bad trip at all. You know this awfully well. You take a plane up to Providence for that Patriots game, you're in the air about 32 minutes or so. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is an up-and-down flight, similar to Buffalo, actually. And for the Jets, though, I think when – we'll hear from Bart Scott, obviously, and we'll break down this matchup a little more. But I just want to say that this Rams team, a couple of years ago, you're thinking about Sean McVay, you're thinking of Jared Goff and that offense. That Rams defense is – one of, if not the best units in the NFL, and they deserve, I think, a little more credit than what they're getting. Uh, maybe it's because it's East Coast bias. I don't know. <laughs> you can make an argument. Seriously, you can make the argument that Aaron Donald is the best player in the National Football League. I'm not saying the most important player because uh, quarterback, you need a quarterback position figured out no matter what team you are. But that front is amazing. I was watching some tape of that game against the Patriots, six sacks. And I think the Patriots finished with like 210 total yards. And a lot of times, Ethan, they're getting there just rushing four. Yeah, they'll blitz on occasion. They'll bring five, but they don't have to bring numbers. And Aaron Donald is just a, a unique freak. He's a force. Uh, he's dominant on the interior. And then, of course, they have Jalen Ramsey, who's been yeah. doing a wonderful job in the secondary. He locked up DK Metcalf. He locked up DeAndre Hopkins. And in that division, you need someone like Jalen Ramsey to go up against those two guys that I just mentioned. But for a more of an in-depth look at Jets Rams, let's hear from Bart Scott for our Victorinox Swiss Army Knife Player of the Game segment. Okay, Bart, so the Jets travel back out to L.A. to take on the Rams, their second of back-to-back West Coast trips. What's your matchup to watch? I mean, this is going to be interesting because there's a lot of different ways you can go, but I think you got to go squarely on uh, Makai. Uh, I talked to Makai a couple of uh, weeks ago, and he said that he was going to be excited to see what Aaron Donald brought to the table as they continue to bring Aaron Donald and put him outside. But if you look secretly, Leonard Floyd is having you know one of those games and one of those seasons where you say, okay, well, this is exactly what you know the Chicago Bears thought they were getting when they drafted him in the first round, and um, he's playing at a high level too. So I don't know if, if Makai is going to – you know, get a, a much of a time off because he's going to be challenged off early and often from this from this defensive line. But there's a lot of different ways you can go, man, because, you know, Robert Woods, Cooper Cup, you know, you, you saw that the Jets really gave up a lot of yardage early on against uh, Seattle, you know, on those Jet sweeps. Well, that's exactly what, you know, the, uh, the, the Rams do early and often with, with, with Woods coming in, some of those ghost motions, those, you know, Ricky Williams speed sweeps and, you know, without Jordan Jenkins there trying to solidify and, and, and lock down the uh, the corner, it's going to be exciting to see what happens. But if I had to pick one, I'm going to go back to my original and talk about Beckton versus, you know, Floyd and Aaron Donald. Oh, I love it. And I, I'm going to steal some of his thunder because the Jets are facing perhaps maybe the best player in the National Football League. He doesn't play the most important position, which, of course, is quarterback. But 
Aaron Donald, fellas, 12 and a half sacks this year. Bart talked about Leonard Floyd. He's got seven and a half sacks. Michael Brockers uh, has chipped in with five sacks. Listen to these statistics for the Rams. Number one in total defense. Number one in yards per play. Number one in passing defense. Number three in rush defense. Number three in sacks per pass attempt. Second in third down efficiency, this is the best defense in the National Football League and the best defensive player in the league is Aaron Donald. And I wanted to ask Bart about this because the Rams, they're a 3-4 front. And a lot of times they don't have to blitz because they can get there just rushing four. Aaron Donald might be matched up a lot against new Jets guard Pat Elfline, not the outside guy in Mackay Becton. How do you double a guy like Aaron Donald? Because he can't have a guard just matched up on much uh, matched up against him one on one every play, Bart. Well, yeah, you you could if you put the tight end to that side, and that allows Becton not to be secure for the edge. So that allows maybe Griffin or Herndon to be responsible for uh, for the outside pass rusher. And you can chip with those two guys and then let Makai come in and get a free world-class shot. And you got to tell the guard, hey, don't miss inside. Don't miss outside. Miss inside. Because then now he'll have to split the double between him. And if you're doing that, you know, you also want to be able to let him go a couple of times as well. Because you want you saw uh, when they played the Patriots, they would just trap him and wham block him a lot, right? Because he gets through and because he shoots off the ball so fast that if the guy above in front of him doesn't block him, you can kind of trap block him and use his momentum and his aggressiveness against him. You got to give him a, de- a steady dose because if you just allow him to line up in a three-point stance and think that anybody that you put in front of him is going to be able to consistently hold their own against him, you're going to be mistaken. But they've gotten better at moving him around so that you can't just put a target on him like teams do it in Dominican Sioux. They've been able to move him around and allow him to be like that pawn piece where if they find a weakness in your in your front, that he's going to exploit it. Ethan, before so, you go ahead, I just wanted okay. to ask Bart real quick. If you're the Jets offensively and you're coming off a three-point performance against Seattle, I just wanted to uh, see if you thought you got to run a lot of 12 and 13 personnel, go a lot of uh, double tights and maybe at times three tight ends against this team. Well, the, the, traditionally, when you think about when you go with those personnel, teams don't have a lot of blitz packages with it, and you hope that they go heavy and hope that you can maybe take your chances one-on-one on the outside. The problem is, if you want to do that, you're going against arguably the best corner in the, in the game, and Ramsey, so like, he may take that away. So then the blitz or the pass rush will eventually get there. I think you have to be creative. I think you can go two tight ends, but you may try and go with slot fronts so you can still have – you know, you know, your backside and your edges are tight in, but then you have your two receivers on the field, you know, on the same side. So then you can kind of force Sam to only have to read half the field because both his receivers to the left and your check down and, and, and what you have left is going over to the tight end. So now you waste Ramsey on somebody that they, that, you know, you waste Ramsey on a tight end that's not coming out. And then you're able to work one side of the field opposite him and force him to just kind of waste himself sitting there on the backside bored to death. And then hopefully maybe later you sneak one out on the low where he thinks that, you know, lull him to sleep and then maybe get a vertical route by Herndon while he's sleeping. 
For my matchup to watch, I'm going to go with this Jets run defense against the Rams rushing attack last week. Rookie Cam Akers against the New England Patriots ran wild. The Seahawks did a good job moving the ball against the Jets front that takes pride in stopping the run. So, Bart, what did you see out of this Jets rush defense last week against the Seahawks, maybe compared to what they did the week before that to the Raiders? And what do they now need to do? And how do they prepare for this Rams rushing attack? I mean, you just have to make sure that you have borders, right? Make sure that you make sure that everybody has a run in between the tackles. You can't give up your perimeter because when you do that, you cut the defense. And I think to answer your other question, what did they do different from, you know, um, you know, from the you know, the Raiders? You think that they had their starting running back. Josh Jacobs didn't play in that game, so they didn't have their number one. And you look at Chris Carson, he's coming back. He's a guy that they've been waiting to come back. He dramatically changed their defense. He's a tone setter with Carlos Hyde, and they were able to just – continue to try and wear the team down. And when you're when you're out there and you don't really, you know, get opportunities and drives are extended, eventually, you know, that 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 dam will break and it and it broke. And when you when it breaks in, it's free yards out there for everybody to get. And also, you know, you have Russell Wilson. It's a you know, element of his game and what he's able to do in extending plays. Now you don't have to worry about that with golf. But you know with Russell Wilson, you have to worry about him being creative and creating on the fly because his ability to be a dual threat quarterback. Awesome. That was another great edition of the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife Player of the Game segment. And that wraps up another edition of the official Jets podcast powered by Amazon Web Services. Bart, as always, thanks for your time. My pleasure.